are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, and this evening we're looking at chapter 9. You'll find this on page 422 of the Pew Bible. I don't know if you've seen this. This is our Bible. It's a beautiful Bible. And it's page 422. We'll be reading together chapter 9 of the book of Job. Hear the word of God. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so. In myself. 
Job had listened to the prickly speech of his friend Bildad, who was the son of contention. Bildad, you remember, was a conservative, a traditionalist who called Job an old windbag. He had very little patience and sympathy for this man who had suffered so much. Bildad was less courteous and far more cantankerous than his colleague Eliphaz, and he viewed the world as a tightly ordered and closed moral system. A person reaps what he sows. There's no nuance, no mystery in his view. And we must admit, I think, that Bildad was orthodox in his belief in God's justice. You might recall him saying, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And to those rhetorical questions, the expected answer was a definite no, he doesn't. God does not pervert justice. The Almighty does not pervert the right. And as far as it goes, that's truthful. Bildad knew something about the character of God. His problem was in the application of that truth to the circumstances of life. In this world, justice is not executed absolutely. It's called relative justice. Some sins are punished while others are overlooked and the wicked prosper. Some good deeds are overlooked and believers endure and the righteous suffer. And God is sovereign and his ways are often shrouded in deep mystery. The secret things we're told in Deuteronomy 29 belong to him, and it's the things that are revealed that belong to us. So we're called to believe his word even when providence around us is confusing. Affliction or adversity are not indications of God's divine disfavor. At the same time, and I've heard this more often than not, Prosperity and success are not indications of his favor. I've heard it sometimes said, well, if my plan succeeds, it must be of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The rule is faithfulness, not success. The question is not, is the door open? The question is, is it lawful and wise? So we're left, we left off with Bildad calling for Job to repent of his unconfessed sin. And in response, Job underscores his agreement with Bildad's orthodox belief. Notice in verse 2, I know that it's so, but how can a man be in the right with God? Yes, Bildad, God is just. The wicked will be ruined. The godly will be preserved. That's the ultimate end of things. God, good will prevail over the evil, but in the meantime, on this earth, at this time, what are we to do? How can a man be in the right before God? What is the plan of salvation, in other words? And here Job asks the most important question that anybody can pose. The question, I think, is similar to that which was raised by the psalmist in Psalm 130. He said, and I quote, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And it's a rhetorical question, of course. It expects the answer, nobody. Nobody can stand. 
Mankind as a whole is guilty and depraved and devoid of any merit. And that's why Paul, in his third chapter of the Romans, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, he claims. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there's no disagreement here regarding the sinful state of mankind, nor is there any dispute that I can see over the absolute holiness and justice of God. They both agree. These are foundational doctrines that both Job and Bildad affirm. And what's more, Job affirms the important truths regarding God himself. We're no match for the Almighty. He is infinitely wise and all-powerful. No one, he says, can harden himself against the Lord and hope to succeed. That's folly. He can move mountains. He can shake the earth. He can command the sun. He created all things, and he stretched out the heavens and established the seas. He set the stars in place, and he maintains all the constellations. He's a great God and greatly to be feared and beyond searching out. He does what he wants, and nobody can call him to account. So, Bildad, you speak of sin and guilt, and all people stand guilty before God. He is so great, so majestic, so powerful that you and I are in no position to question him. Regarding the justice of God and the guilt of man, Bildad's theology is sound. But as I said, his application of those biblical doctrines was harsh and lifeless. He was unsympathetic and impatient. He's one of the frozen chosen. But Job raised an important question. How can a man be right before God? In light of God's unyielding justice, the fact of the matter is that no one can stand. So apart from grace, there is no hope for anybody to be right before God. Unless the Lord himself deals with our guilt, we will all likewise perish, and Job knows this. He framed his entire life around this core belief. He had confessed his guilt. Job had repented of all known sin. There was no question of his need for mercy and forgiveness. And as a sincere worshiper of God who sacrificed more than once a day, he believed he'd received it. He trusted in the Lord as the God who is rich in mercy and abounding in grace. His worship and his service and his obedience were expressions of a sincere faith in this God. And the expectation of a promised Redeemer was vague, but it was very real in his mind. He trusted in the coming Messiah, who he said in chapter 19 would stand upon the earth. So in faith, he's looking ahead to the arrival of Jesus, and he was glad, and that's one of the reasons why he's so confused, why he's tempted to despair. Have I wrongly trusted in the God who seems to have forsaken me? What is happening? His word and my experience do not match. He crushes me. He multiplies my wounds. He fills me with bitterness. And you and I can only imagine how Job felt in the midst of his pain and confusion. 
He believed himself to be blameless religiously, but God was treating him as if he was in the wrong. And he says in verse 15, I am in the right. I can't answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. He's bigger and wiser and stronger. He's more just and holy than I am. And I can't go to court with him. And I want you to note how Job highlights the inequality between himself and the supreme judge. He is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both. They're not on even terms. With God, he's not even on equal footing. There's no common ground. God is an infinite spirit, and man is a finite human being. If God were a man, Job might contend, but how does he contend with infinite spirit? His ways, his thoughts, his purposes transcend those of mere human beings. So there was no arbiter between God and man, nobody who could mediate. If only there could be someone to determine the differences between them. But who understands both the divine and the human nature? Who is intimately aware of both sets of conditions with the divine and the human? So vastly different is God and man that nobody can lay their hands on both. No human being, no mere human being could ever be some sort of referee between them. But you see, Jesus Christ is no mere man. He is the only mediator between the two because he is divine and human, the eternal and incarnate Son of God, so that he is able to meet and mediate between heaven and earth and between God and man. Because of his two natures, he's able to lay a hand on the one and on the other and to bring us together. And yet the person and work of Jesus was not then as clear to Job as it is to us. The gospel reveals, and this is the good news, that in Christ the believer may be right with God. He is justified by the obedience and death of Jesus, the sinner's substitute. And hence, according to Romans 1, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We're forgiven and we're accepted because of the vicarious suffering of Christ. In our place, he suffered. And as our substitute, he died. And it was vicarious. And all the Old Testament sacrifices, including those that Job offered, pointed forward to this truth. And he understood He, remember, would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of his children, knowing that only through another may the believer stand before God as righteous and accepted. Of course, precisely how this would be accomplished was obscure in his day. Over time, through the centuries, gradually there would be greater clarity so that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And all of that in response to the question, how can a man or a woman be in the right before God? You know, our greatest concern in the hour of death will be the answer to that question. How we stand with one another and other people is trivial. How we stand with God is critical. Apart from Jesus, all of man's thoughts are false and his efforts are vain. You've heard these things and I have too. People say things like this. I've tried to live a good life and I hope it all works out in the end. Or God is merciful. I imagine he'll see that I've tried to treat others fairly. Or I've attended church regularly. I've often read my Bible. That's got to mean something. Or my dad was an elder in the church. My mom served in all sorts of ways. That's got to mean something. You see, even the best of men with the greatest of all virtues fall short of the glory of God, and they're still sinners. And no sinner is able to stand before the holy presence of an eternal God. And the only way of salvation is through the obedience and suffering of Christ welcomed through faith. That's it. As we fell by the disobedience of Adam, so we're saved by the obedience of Jesus. That's it. He has a human mother a divine father, and he's ideally suited to mediate. The miraculous conception exempted him from sin and preserved him from guilt, and therefore Jesus is the perfect substitute for those who trust in him. That's the answer to his question. We didn't read it, but in chapter 10, Job continues his speech by acknowledging the depth of his misery. He says, I loathe my life. He loathes it. He pours out his heart to God, the great creator of all, and he appeals to his own conception and formation in the womb. God's hand fashioned him, but now it seems like God wants to destroy him. And Job's language affirms, I think, the beauty and the wonder of human formation. He acknowledges, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that every person is created poured out like milk and curdled like cheese. God's work of bringing a human into being is absolutely amazing. He clothes him with skin and flesh and knits him together with bones and sinews. And Job understands that each human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. And he knows that life begins at conception, mind you. He affirms it. God is at work in the womb, and there he is there at the beginning, even when we're hidden in the depths of the earth. Even so, that being said, Job loathes his life. Why did you bring me out of the womb, he says? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. You see, Job knows that his days are few and that his life is hard and that death is certain. God, won't you please leave me alone? My life's going to be over. (laughs) 
Death, he says, is the land of gloom and thick darkness and deep shadow, and his faith, as we can see here, is teetering on the brink of despair, though he has a sliver of hope. And we know from behind the scenes, God will never let him go. So some of the observations I think we should make are these. First, the discouragement Job feels is not too different from what you and I experience at times. Whether physical affliction, mental anguish, or emotional upheaval, sometimes you and I are called to endure things that bring us very low. We feel trapped, helpless, incapable of rising above our circumstances. And God seems to be distant and indifferent, though the truth is he's very near. It may appear that he's given up on you, and you're tempted to believe it. But one thing things we learn from the book of Job is God's unwavering love. Unwavering, steady, steadfast. Despite all of Job's confusion and complaints, in the end, you'll notice, he's commended. Because you see, God's love and sovereign grip on his people does not depend on us. He has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he's big enough and he's strong enough and he's loving enough to handle your complaints. You're not going to hurt his feelings. In the midst of all of our confusion, he's with us, enabling us to persevere. And our questions never threaten him. Our grievances don't anger him. There is nothing, and I repeat, nothing that you can say or do that would separate you from his love, ever. So trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I want you to think of a toddler. We have plenty of them in our church. The toddler often questions, and he sometimes often complains, has fits of anger and rage. Does any of that cause his parents to give up on him and cast him away? Not at all. His parents want him to become the best he can be. Their love for him never changes, and they're intent on training him. And the analogy applies. God is doing the same thing with us. But then secondly, Job reminds us of the importance of a mediator between God and man. It's important both for individual circumstances and our human experience, because you see, Job's desire for a mediator is actually the desire of humanity. Man as he now is cannot be right with God as he has always been. We've sinned against his holiness. We've sinned against his holiness. And justice demands the penalty of death. And misery is universal and no one is exempt from the effects of the curse. And the experience of suffering awakens within humanity a desire for mediation. Is there not someone who can appease the wrath of a holy God? Is there not some way for penitent sinners to be forgiven and accepted? We can frame Verse 33, as a question, is there no arbiter who can lay his hand on us both? 
I think the need for a mediator was implied in what the high priest Eli said to his recalcitrant sons. He said to them, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Who indeed? No one at that time would have ever guessed the Son of God. But in Jesus, Job's desire for mediation is literally and fully met. And when no one else could redeem his neighbor, God found a ransom. His desire for an arbiter to lay hands on both was realized in Jesus. He said, Revelation 1, and I quote, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Job's complaint that he's not a man as I am has now been refuted, because Christ Jesus is a man, the incarnate deity, the redeemer of sinners. And as God-man, he's able to lay his hand on both God and man. But then third and finally, I think we should trust the great arbiter who pleads our case in the courtroom of heaven. The judge sits upon the throne from which he will render all judgment. And in this great cosmic court, two main principles will govern the proceedings. On the one hand, strict justice is followed and it's applied to everyone. And Christ is determined to uphold the law in all of its rigid detail. God is not partial to anyone, but requires each case to be decided on its merits. And we're told in Exodus 34 that we read, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. On the other hand, divine mercy is extended when and where appropriate, because he is a God rich in mercy, fervent in love, and he cannot deny himself. So the same text we read says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So King Jesus would have justice and mercy work together in the proceedings. In the cosmic court, it becomes clear that we've broken the commands and the indictment is obvious. Our guilt is plain and the situation seems grave. A trembling sinner is brought before the bar and he's required to make a plea. I've sinned, he says. I couldn't help it. It's my nature. I'm no worse than others. And when his plea is rejected, he falls to his knees realizing that there is no appeal. And that's when he asks for clemency and he calls upon the mercy of God. He says, the case against me is airtight and I have nothing to plead. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And strict justice raises its voice and says God cannot and he will not clear the guilty. But then the advocate steps forth and he says, I cannot dishonor God and I will not condemn the sinner. 
This trembling sinner is one of mine. See, his name is engraved on my palm and written over my heart. I suffered in his place. I satisfied those rigid demands of justice, and I upheld the holiness of my father. And at that, the judge accepts the satisfaction, he approves the plea, and he acquits the believer. And the host of heaven breaks into praise and thanksgiving for the Savior of the world and the salvation of the sinner. And that's how every soul for whom Jesus pleads will be forgiven and accepted by God. And each case will be settled on the principles of both justice and mercy. And according to James, mercy triumphs over judgment. So at the last day, we will all be either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. And the question that you and I must answer this evening is among whom will we be numbered? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we can't thank you enough for providing an arbiter, freely providing him and offering, to, offering him to us as the one who brings salvation We pray that you'll be with everyone within the hearing of my voice, that we all would place our trust in Jesus Christ, the great advocate for your people. And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.